Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is biographer and novelist Rog Glass. Rog first met Alistair Gray, the subject of his new biography, when Gray visited the pub where Rog was working while still a student in Glasgow. Despite stumbling beginnings, when Rog was overawed by Gray's literary reputation, his novel Lanark, after all, does appear in many lists of the best post-war novels in the English language, he went on to become Gray's student, his friend, secretary, and eventually biographer. Much of the book's charm derives from the fact that Glass eschews the usual biographer's tone of impersonal omniscience. Glass is a participant in Gray's life, a character in his book, frank and funny about Gray's and his own flaws and foibles, a Boswell to Gray's Johnson. I asked him about the origins of this unusual strategy. I'd always kept diary entries because things were continually happening with Alistair that I felt that I wanted to record anyway. But it became increasingly obvious as I was going on in the process that what I was trying to do and what I thought I could give that somebody in the future or that doesn't know Alistair so well can't give is access to what it's like to be in a room with him. You know, it's a, a remarkable personality, maddening and peculiar in many ways and full of ticks, but fascinating. And I really think that Alistair Gray fans in a hundred years are going to want to know what he was like to stand with. So I thought, ah, right, okay, this is how I should do this. I should do a diary entry about watching him paint or about watching him do events, readings, taking questions, uh, publicising his, his latest novel, uh, visiting him in hospital, driving him to a friend's funeral. These are the things where you can see the human being in a way that you can't when you're saying, and in 1992, Poor Things was published, and it was received like this. So what I then had was these two strands going decade by decade in his life in a very traditional academic way and analysing the work in depth and praising some of it and criticising others and using the interviews that I'd done to embellish those and also interviews with Alistair and then this other half which was like the it, like the light relief in between all of the hard work of, of reading about you know his obscure poetry from the late 1980s that didn't do very well I felt the balance between those two things was really important some some of those scenes as you say are, are have a sort of rich absurd comedy to them there's a moment where I think you're taking dictation and he gets up and urinates in the sink which stuck in in my mind it stuck in my mind as well <laughs> although it was at that moment I thought ah yes here is a man who deserves my respect but that was because he didn't pause in the dictation <laughs> at the time he, he whilst urinating continued to dictate the letter that he'd been dictating so I think I say in the book I don't think I ever you know, washed my hands in that sink again. But I certainly thought, yes, here's a man who deserves my respect. You're a novelist. I wondered how you did justice to the, the character that is, is Alistair Gray, or how you felt, how you approached the question of doing justice to him without him becoming a caricature, because obviously there's a risk of that. I mean, you could, you could simply fill a book full of anecdotes like, 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 like that one. So how did, how did you maintain his sort of reality and humanity at the same time as, as having this fund of, um, of stories that you could have simply regaled us with in those uh, light, and, light and shade passages? There definitely could have been another 100,000 words of pissing stories or fart stories, and that would have made him a caricature. But by spending any deal of time with Alistair, it's very obvious that his personality has many, many other deeper facets to it and that he's not ignorant of the way that people see him. 
he's not stupid so he in fact the opposite the, the book argues that he's a great mind so over the years he's refined some of those personality ticks in order to be able to get what he wants out of people as well as anybody would do and what i tried to do is to explore those darker sides as well in order to do him justice that's more difficult for our relationship in general now and i suppose you know for the future because it's difficult for Alistair to read certain things but i hope that i've done it in the most honest way that i can and you have to show what he's like at his lowest or else his highest doesn't mean anything so i was very aware of turning him into this caricature that people would just laugh at but there's one diary entry where i was introducing Alistair at an event and then interviewed a number of people in the audience afterwards about how they perceived him and it is interesting how some do think that he is just that caricature but he knows what people see and plays up to that when he wants to and refuses to at other times and if you spend a number of years with somebody paying attention there are enough opportunities to see all of those sides and it's an honest biographer's duty to show them all I think you say that interviewers when they interview Alistair Gray get a sort of one man show and there's there's still that presentation of himself and you talk, you, you mentioned the, the you know the voices that he does and I wondered if you if you felt that you had kind of by spending so much time close to him you had kind of gone through all those those layers and got to something that you really understood behind it about what made the man tick I think so to some extent but I don't pretend to have done so any more than anyone else who's, who's known him for many years. I mean, many of the people I interviewed have known Alistair for 30, 40, 50 years. And so I wouldn't pretend to know him as well as they do. But you certainly become aware of when certain voices are used and what that means. But it doesn't mean that Alistair was dishonest. I mean, on the contrary, he said that he feels that he's not afraid of this biography because he's faced the worst of what he's done and said in his life and I think that's true he, d- he doesn't mean very often to mislead I'm talking about more subtle subconscious things that might be going on about ways to interact with the world Alistair said in a, a self-portrait he wrote for the Saltai Society about 20 years ago he wrote about all of those ticks and honestly said I think that I use them when I say I'm saying something that I really mean, but I'm afraid that people won't take seriously. There are defense mechanisms, social social defense mechanisms that you sometimes see him repeating in ad- events or in interviews or or just in conversations. So I, I I do think I've become familiar with say when he brings the gentleman of advancing years out of the drawer, or the you know the wee Scotch laddie, but I don't pretend to know until I've got deeper to him than than say Liz Lockhead or Eleanor Hind or any of the people that have known him all his life T- Tell me a bit about the, the, the painting because at one point I can't remember if this is a quotation from him or from you but he's described as a lucky jack of all trades and I want, but I wondered to what extent his talents as a painter and as a writer have perhaps made it less easy for people to to know exactly where you know how to take him and, and, what, and what, what he is or what his place is in, in, in contemporary culture I think that the, the fact that he does so many things is what makes him unusual and fascinating and also hard to place and that's made his life more difficult because people can't easily put him in a box and that's difficult for publishing because they have to deal with him doing his, art, his artwork and that's they're not used to it it's difficult for 
those digesting is art because it's so full of words and it's difficult for those in poetry and plays and polemics and everything because he has been involved in all of these things and no matter how much you press him he won't admit to being more one than the other because he isn't and that makes the the whole story far more complicated and I think it has definitely it's definitely made it more difficult for him to be accepted yet I think certain things are just taking a little while longer for example you mentioned the painting there in the last 12 months the main change that's happened with Alistair since I've finished the book is that he now has a an international art agent who is finally making him money from his paintings and he's 73 <laughs> you know it's it's just taken a while but then it took a while with the writing as well he was in his 50s by the time his first book came out and it had taken him 30 years so maybe that's just part of the pattern of long gestation periods and the, I think the best of his work will survive and people will always be confused by him and gone yes well what is he really mm. but then there's that's a question that there's no point asking I don't think William Blake was both he was both artist and poet and so is Alistair let me ask you finally presumably one of the the outcomes you hope the book will have is that people go back and, and read the work or discover the work for the first time and I wondered what you would say to somebody who has never dipped a toe into the water where best to to start with with Alistair Gray's writing the one that I always recommend to people who have no context for Alistair or don't don't know his work at all is Poor Things because I think that's the most fun I think it has all of the elements of the flavour of Glasgow that's always so important in Alistair's work but it's not it doesn't keep readers away it invites people in and also because it's has elements of gothic and pastiche and trying so many different flavours at the same time I I think that's the most easy to get at but not the, the, it's not shallow in any way it's a deeply satisfying rich book and much of Alistair's best work has come as a surprise to him and Poor Things came out of nowhere he was writing a short story book he wasn't really interested in at the time and as he said it swole up enormous mm. without his permission mm. which is always a great sign mm. it meant that he was just doing it for fun and you can see the fun on the page and that's the one I always recommend starters and is Lanark the one that in decades to come will be on lists of, of great Scottish books do you think? I think the momentum is behind Lanark in a way that the others would find hard to catch up with but again I find this, this stuff interesting the, the reception to 1982 Janine has definitely changed in recent years since it was it was republished as a Canongate classic about five years ago the attitude to it was very negative at the beginning but I think it's in many ways it's his strongest most powerful work it's it's most difficult in a way as well but I hope that that's the one that is remembered I think Poor Things because it was the most popular also has a chance <laughs> but even very great writers struggle to be remembered for more than one book and if it's Lanark, then that's okay because that's his that's the book that he always wanted to write before he died and it took him most of his life to write it and once he'd finished it he didn't quite know what to do because he felt he'd achieved what he wanted to so perhaps perhaps that is right that it will be Lanark <laughs>